Welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for wisdom, mentorship, and inspiration, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast. Oh my goodness, I am excited, ladies and gentlemen. I got him, my brother. Yes, it's true, my big brother. Let me give you a full introduction to give him some covered as we do with all our artists here at the Holy Sparks Podcast. Michael K has been written about by Rolling Stone, Billboard, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Los Angeles Times. He has appeared at the Knitting Factory, Dixon Place, the Comic Strip Live, the Comedy Cellar, and Gotham Comedy Club. And he has been a writing fellow at the Virginia Center for Creative Arts, the Julia and David White Colony, Ragdale, the Malay Colony for the Arts, and the WUJS slash Arad Arts Program in Israel. He received the President's Undergraduate Fellowship for his film on obsessed Stevie Nicks fans from UC Berkeley, where he created the Berkeley Popular Culture Society and had Mick Fleetwood, John Lee Hooker, Dick Dale, and Ice-T play for his family and graduated with honors. Michael Kay worked at the Hagafen Cellars Winery for five years in Napa, did a winemaking internship at the Shiloh Winery, Shiloh Winery in Israel, a brief stint at Four Gates in Santa Cruz, and a number of years at Gallo Wines before committing full-time to Inve. So, ladies and gentlemen, would you please put your hands together for my big brother, Michael K. Oh, let's go. Louder in the back. That's how we do it. Come on, let's go. The one that, let's go. Give it up. Oh, my goodness. They're excited today. They are excited today. Oh, Mikey, how are you doing, sir? Well, it's it's an absolute pleasure to be here with you, Saul. It's a real honor. It's great to be on your podcast and uh, to be given a chance to connect and chat and schmooze. And thank you for the uh, Kavodic uh, introduction. I'm just delighted to be here and to get to the it's my pleasure. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to attempt to keep the inside jokes of our family to a minimum, but no guarantees. We'll do our best. Uh, but for those of my audience that aren't familiar with you and your work, you know, I like to have people talk a little bit about their you know, Jewish upbringing, early family experiences, and anything else you want to tell them about, you know, your upbringing, Jewishly. Mainly it was dealing with you. <laughs> <laughs> And away we go. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, uh, I mean, you're familiar with the story, but I imagine your your listeners are, are not. So, you know, our family emigrated from South Africa when I was five, and we grew up reform. But in South Africa, reform is much more traditional than in it is in America, so Friday evenings, we always made Kiddish and said Motsi, and uh, but then we watched Dallas, or you know, then we hung out, um, and we did, but we did the high holidays, you know, we did we always did Pesach, and we did Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Hanukkah, 
and uh, had the classic reform journey, you know, went to Hebrew school after school, Sunday school. And then as soon as I was bar mitzvahed, I was gone, you know, off, off I went to the Wabalu yonder. Um, and it took me many years to, to come back to Yiddishkeit. And uh, thankfully our dad took us to Israel when I was 27. And we had this one week adventure where we were exploring Israel for the first time. And then that one week was highly transformative. I had some powerful experiences, particularly at the Kotel. And when I came back to California, where I was living at the time, I decided I need to look into this more. I need to see what, what is calling on me, what is pulling on me. I had a, a series of powerful dreams where I, I sort of felt almost like these ancestral spirits calling to me. And so I got really religious and went to a conservative synagogue. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and to me, compared to how we grew up, it felt like re religious zealotry. But what I loved was Saturday morning, sitting there in shul, experiencing some quiet and experiencing some community, which was something that I realized I just didn't have. I didn't even know what community really meant. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I really discovered um, from there and then moving to New York and then eventually moving to Israel and then finally settling in Berkeley was how important community really is to my well-being and, and my life and the meaning it has. And, um, and you know, finding like-minded people who want to do Shabbos with me or want to do holidays with me, but who I can still show all the sides of myself. It's not just going to shul and, and being, you know, in a particular thing for a few hours a week. It's like, hanging out with my friends on Shabbos day and having a good lunch and, and laughing and drinking wine and all that sort of thing. And, and, and in some ways, my, my winemaking grew out of that and ha has been another pillar on my Jewish journey in terms of connecting with other. other I Jews. love it. Okay. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to more of the wine journey in just a minute. It's interesting too. I, I remember coming back from that trip and the first show I went to was, also conservative shul in Berkeley. And maybe we were there together, but I just remember it was like coming back from the wall, sitting with, there was maybe 300 Jews singing and just crying. And it was just very cathartic uh, coming home. So now one of the things I wanted to ask you as well, and I know that it's a progressive journey, right? So now you're Shomer Shabbat observant. And so was there a person along the way after the experience of Israel who sort of modeled for you what this life could be like, or who really inspired you to sort of take some next steps in your journey? And then talk about that. Well, there are a number of people along the way who who, who provided that for me. Um, you know, when when I came back to California, at first I was I was still living in Fresno, which is not a, a vibrant Jewish community, although it's growing now. But to, but to say the least, it was not uh, the scene. And uh, the members of the conservative synagogue, who were all maybe 30 to 40 years older than I was, uh, kept telling me, you have to move to New York. You have to go to New York. That's where it is. That's where you'll meet, you know, Jewish women that you're, are your age and you'll you'll meet, make community. And blah, blah, blah. so um, 
I got inspired by them and by our cousin Daria, who at the time was living in New York. And I went out to New York for a week and and did all sorts of things. And, and one of the things was shul hopping, which I did with, with Daria. And I went to a place called B'nai Jeshurun on yeah, the yeah. West Side, which is a very, very spirited, soulful, musical uh, synagogue. And I don't know what it's like today, but at that time, there was maybe three, 400 people going to a Friday night synagogue service. And, and they were all, you know, people in their 20s and 30s. And it was like a scene. It was like, and it was so shocking to me. And I remember actually, you know, coming from Fresno, where there was just nobody my age doing any of this stuff. And I remember they they had organized a um, a Friday night sort of dinner where different people hosted you in their homes. And I went to, I showed up at this apartment, and it was me and thirteen women, and they were just like, <laughs> "Hi, hi, hi!" And it was. It was a little actually overwhelming. I mean, in a somewhat good way, but it was so the opposite of where I'd come from. And it was, you know, really my first moment of being amongst uh, Jewish peers doing Jewish things outside of shul. So like outside of like a religious institution, like connecting with people. And so in some ways that was, that was very helpful. And then Another thing that had happened was, um, well, so I moved to I moved to Queens. I ended up moving to New York, moving to Queens, and uh, you just tell me if you want me to condense this or anything. But uh, right, Astoria. Astoria, 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 yes, Astoria, Queens was at the time you could get a two bedroom apartment for five hundred dollars a month, which seems like a miracle now, uh, and uh, and. Uh, when I moved there, it was just before Passover, and so I was looking for a synagogue to go to, and I found a conservative synagogue in the phone book that was back then when you used phone books, and uh, I went to I went to the, the first day services, and, and it didn't have the same feeling as the synagogue I had gone to in California, so for the second day, I was trying to see if there was maybe another synagogue nearby I could try out, and it turned out there was an Orthodox synagogue on the same block where I lived, like maybe towards the end of the block. And I thought, well, let me just try it, you know? And I went there and it was a real Stiebelich kind of place, small, intimate, um, everybody, the youngest person there was 70. Uh, and uh, I ended up sitting next to this guy named Leon, who was 91 and he was sort of like, the hip single guy in in his demographic at the synagogue that all were hitting on, and he just started giving me all sorts of advice and stuff, and it just felt warm. It felt Hamish, mm. and I think you know that word maybe is a great word to describe what I've often sought in Jewish life, which is a feeling of warmth. One second. Also, Hamish. I, I, when I hear Hamish, I think of like down home you know, not pretentious or ostentatious, but like yes. easy, easily accessible if you're not familiar with that word. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. So just like mm. kind of earthy, but you know, um, and uh, so I started going to the, the synagogue because of the people. And um, after about six months, I was trying to keep Shabbat. Um, 
And, but I found in the afternoons, I felt lonely because after shul, there wasn't really much to do. And I realized being sad on Shabbat can't be what Shabbat's about. So I davened to Hashem to help me find, you know, a community that was more vibrant. And I ended up moving to the Upper East Side. Um, and the reason I moved to the Upper East Side uh, was that at the time, and it may still be the case, but it was the least hip neighborhood in New York. It was more like families and stuff. So the rents for studios were much lower than in the village or the Upper West Side or whatever. And it just so happened that um, uh, Aisha Torah had just placed two rabbis um, in the neighborhood about two blocks away from me who were trying to build a community. And uh, uh, Rabbi Adam Jacobs and Rabbi, uh, well, we just called him Rabbi Henry. Um, I don't remember his last name, but they were very warm, very inviting people, very knowledgeable and young and, and sort of like trying to really connect. And so I started developing uh, a community there of people who I would spend you know, the holidays with and spend Shabbat with. Um, and I would go to Aish classes. And then I, one, because I, once I was in Manhattan, I started hopping around, going to different synagogues, checking out the scene on the Upper West Side. Sometimes I'd go down to the village to go to Chabad in the village. There was a guy, he used to be a, a fan, a deadhead, basically. He used to follow the dead around and he had become a Chabad rabbi. And so he was fun to hang out with. His, guy, his name is Yona. I forget his last name, but really nice guy. Um, and then I joined a Moroccan Sephardic congregation because they had great food and they all dress really cool because they have the French influence. <laughs> and um, and it was it was nice. Um, but what I found over a couple of years' time is I grew in my observancy. I became Shomer Shabbat. I was davening three times a day. I was using my tefillin, uh, and I was you know learning on Shabbat. Uh, by listening to drashas from the, the rabbis and stuff. But what I found is that I realized that most of the people that I was in communion with, we shared Shabbat or we shared observance in common. But outside of that space, we didn't really have much in common. So mm -hmm. I was more involved in the arts world at the time. You know, I was doing storytelling and I was a writer and I was teaching writing. And so I had this sort of bifurcated life one part was my Jewish observant scene and the other was like my arts life and they didn't match at all. And it wasn't until maybe just before I left New York that I, I met, I finally made a couple friends in, in the observant world who were also like into the arts and creativity. Um, and one of them left for Israel and then the other one decided to become a tax attorney. <laughs> <laughs> I was the only two options available. Yeah. So I kind of thought, well, maybe I could go to Israel. It's been five years since my original experience there at the hotel. Maybe it'd be good to check in and see how it feels now. So I applied to um, a program called WUJIS, W-U-J-S, uh, which stands for World Union of Jewish Students. But it was really World Union of Jewish Singles. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so 
It was a program in the Negev desert and they had an arts component where they gave you a studio where you could just work on your writing and that kind of thing. And they did, you know, tours to Ulam around the country. And so I lived there for about a year. And that was the first time where I began to really develop community with other Jews who were both observant, but also kind of funky and out of the box. Mm -hmm. And um, I think one of the challenges for many people who, who, who are themselves like artistic and creative, when they come into the orthodox sphere, it's often very straight laced and a little more rigid than, their, than their, the rest of their lives. And so finding like-minded people can sometimes take time, but they exist, for sure they exist. So um, yeah, I did that. Then I went to yeshiva for about four months at Bat Ayan in the West Bank. And that was like going to the next level of sort of funky soul searchers who were really connected to Yiddishkeit, but were also like into indie rock and organic farming and all the stuff, which was very strange because it was in the West Bank which I had never even thought about going to because of the political ramifications, everything. But after touring a number of yeshivot, this felt like home. Of all the places, this felt like the, the best fit. And a lot of the people that I met there I'm still close with today. One of them, Roz Hartman, he actually was studying there. He has a minion in Jerusalem, and he just did a concert in Berkeley last week. But one of the guys that I met there, a wonderful person named Avi Rosenfeld, whose brother ran an indie record label out of Seattle, was really instrumental in connecting me to what would ultimately become my community, which is Berkeley. So I came back from Israel and I was visiting you, Saul, and I remember calling up Avi before Shabbat and saying, is there a community here in the Bay Area that you know of? And he's like, yeah, there's a few people there. You got to go to a place called the Blue Hebrew. Oh, yes. So the Blue, Blue Hebrew, Hebrew turned out to be this big blue house on a, on Ward Street in Berkeley that had like five or six Jewish people living in there, for the most part, grad students of all you know stripes and flavors. So you had the guy who grew up very litfish and yeshivish, who was now had discovered country music and was getting his doctorate in math. And then you had the person who was sort of like, had never had, you know, any religion growing up, but now had discovered like Chabad Hasidus and was into organic farming or whatever. So you had this mishmash of people and it was really nice because it felt like here is a space where I could be both orthodox and all the other sides of myself. And and ultimately, to make a long story short, that's why I settled in Berkeley because I I found lots of people like that here. And, um, you know, then most of them made Aliyah, but still, <laughs> uh, it, it turned out that, you know, as I'm telling you the story, I, I'm realizing that there may be two pillars for me in my Jewish journey. One or three pillars. One is Kiddush, Friday night. And I think that has been a consistent thread that we got as kids growing up in our family. That was always a sweet spot. Saying Kiddush Friday night always feel has felt good and connected me to my parents and my grandparents. The uh, the the second thing is um, 
community, as I've mentioned to you, you know, having shared uh, people I can share Yiddishkeit with who I relate to on many different levels beyond just the Yiddishkeit. And the third thing is davening. You know, a lot of mm -hmm. people who are in the Orthodox world, their main thing is learning, studying texts and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. for me, my way of connecting to Torah has been relational and has been an experiential kind of experience with Hashem. And so for me, the davening is always the one thing that sort of like keeps me engaged because I feel like it's a way to connect really at the deepest level on the best days. And some days, you know, maybe not, but it's like, a, it's an avoda. It's a practice. It's like, it's a discipline that, that gives me a regular space that I can go into every day where I'm just getting centered. And it's, it's really beautiful. So I love it. Well, can you talk more about when you say, you know, the third pillar being davening and that you are cultivating this practice of relational Judaism, not in that what, what one might think of relations with others, although that is part of it. But I, what I'm thinking you're saying by that is your relationship with the Torah and your relationship with Hashem. Is that accurate? And talk a little bit more about that. So people can understand it. Sure. You know, um, let me share something. Many years ago when I was living in New York City, I was working as a book editor. And this was in my early days of becoming observant. And I remember I was struggling with the feelings of that you often see in some of the Jewish liturgy of fear and uh, fearing God and guilt and all these things that made me feel kind of childlike in my relationship to Hashem. And I remember I davened to Hashem, I prayed to God to please help me develop a more adult, mature relationship with, with him, with, with Hashem. And the next day I got a call from a professor of religion and psychology at Fordham University who was looking for a book editor for a book that he had written about people developing adult relationships with God. Amazing. And, wow. and I was blown away. And uh, I thought, okay, well, here we go. And, and I tell that story, not only because it's, you know, an interesting mystical kind of moment, but, but because I feel it's, it's, you know, highly reflective of the relationship with Hashem. And that to me is really the core of it all, is I'm developing a relationship with something larger than myself, something that is woven throughout the fabric of existence. And I don't always understand it. And it, it also doesn't mean that I don't question the notion of God or religion or all those other things i feel like within myself i'm holding multiple parts of me you know in my jewish life which is the total skeptic and the mystic at the same time i i you know it's funny because like uh somebody once recently asked me well how would you describe yourself and i said i'm like a jaded mystic 
You know, I, you know, like the, the old Jewish man at, at, at synagogue is like, ah, we'll get to it. We'll get. To it. It's like that guy meets Moses in a way, you know, it's, I love it. So, well, you know, uh, one thing I uh, thank you for sharing that story. Uh, one thing I love about that is, you know, wrestling with the Siddur for so many years and so many people struggle with the Siddur, the prayer book and the liturgy. And like, well, if I just say all these, I'm praying. You know, you really just demonstrated you're just talking to God, really asking, you know, talking to Hashem, saying whatever it is that you need to say. And and I and I feel like as my experience of all the wider Jewish community is people need to learn how to do that. And it's actually the easiest thing ever, but it's also the hardest thing ever because you have to be completely vulnerable. Right? So I, I appreciate you modeling that and I, I hope more more people will take that on because my experience has also been when I when I open my up and I'm vulnerable and I really ask questions, I get answers. They might not. They might come in some very odd way, you know, that I'm not expecting. Um, but that definitely encourage people to do that because it's it's powerful practice and and uh, you're you're living proof that answers do come. You know, not always right on time. It could come like six months later or five years later or could come right away. You know. But thanks for sharing that. It's really sweet. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, so let's talk about wine, okay? <laughs> Tell me, was there really a moment or even a bottle of wine or an experience you had with wine that made you feel like, hey, I'd like to explore this as not necessarily a vocation, but as a craft? So that's a great question. And I think unlike most people or many people who come into winemaking, who have an experience like you described, you know, they tried a bottle of wine or they were in Southern France on a college tour and they had some magical moment or, or, you know, they had a romantic connection over wine or something that was like powerfully wine centric. I did not have that experience at all. I had no interest in wine I mean, other than the fact, I mean, I, I knew about wine, but it wasn't like really in my consciousness. But my experience and my coming into the winemaking world was entirely hashkacha pratis, the hand of God, or George Bush. Sometimes it's a little <laughs> hard to tease it out. But hashkacha pratis, for those that are not familiar with that phrase, is like one way of describing it's like divine providence, right? Like yes, okay. So in 2008, I was a book editor. And what I what I did for a living at the time is uh, more or less literary agents would send me uh, authors and manuscripts to work with that they wanted to develop a career for. And then I would develop the books with the with the writers and help them in that process to get them published. And um, when the economy tanked in 2008 a lot of that work dried up there was a lot less funding just to have like a special editor just to help you know with the books and i was uh i was actually quite stressed out and worried and unsure how i was going to survive financially and uh so i went and talked with uh one of my rabbis about my situation rabbi welton and He's a very kind, nice man and who uh, does kosher supervision for a lot of the Bay Area, a lot of the events, things like that. 
And he said to me, well, look, I have a bat mitzvah coming up this weekend. I can hire you to do kosher supervision at the bat mitzvah. And I said, well, I don't know anything about kosher supervision. He's like, look, I'll show you. It's pretty easy. You're basically, you're going to be looking for bugs and lettuce and make sure there are no bugs. I said, okay, fine. I can do that. So I worked this bat mitzvah and then he, <clears throat> he liked how I did. And he started giving me, you know, jobs every now and again while I was trying to get, build the editing work back up. And this went on for a few months. And then one day he calls me up and he says, look, I got a call from the OU, the big kosher uh, certification company, and they have requested you to come and oversee a champagne production uh, tomorrow up in a place called Hopland, which is about two hours north of the Bay Area. And I said to him, well, I don't know why they would request me. I've never worked for the OU and I know nothing about champagne. And he says, well, it pays this amount. And I said, well, I'd love to learn about champagne. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So the next day I drove up to Hopland and I get there and there's this whole team of people set up with all the different vats and the, uh, the wine and the grape juice and everything for the champagne. And uh, the guy in charge says, who are you? And I said, I'm Michael. I was told that you requested me. And he looks at me and he says, you're not the Michael we wanted. So <laughs> he gets on the phone with Rabbi Welton and they have a back and forth. And it turns out the Michael they wanted had let, moved away three years before. But now they were kind of stuck because they had this whole crew that they'd hired to do this production and they had everything set up. And so he looked at me kind of resignedly and it's like, all right, you're going to have to do. We'll teach you how to make champagne. <laughs> I love it. So I basically worked there for uh, and did the champagne production for a week. And uh, then they liked working with me and, and they said, well, would you be interested in working the fall harvest in, at our wine winery in Napa, which turned out to be the Hagafen winery. And so I worked uh, that fall there and I didn't really take it seriously or think too much about it because it really felt to me like a a gap measure you know between what i was hoping would become my next editing project so i kept telling them look i'm a book editor i'm a book editor and, they, and they'd say fine you're a book editor but we need you next tuesday and i said okay i'll be here i'll be here and after doing a few harvests with them something sort of clicked in me and I realized while I was doing a little bit of editing on the side, there was something really wonderful about being outside, being in Napa and working with teams of people and doing something physical, which was very different from editing, where I was by myself. It was purely intellectual and um, it was very isolating in many ways. And so... I started to pay attention to what was happening at the winery when I was working. And um, Ernie Weir, the owner of Hagafen, was kind enough to, uh, when I asked him, well, I said, I, I'd like to try making some wine. So he gave me his second tier crop, like the stuff that they, that you don't normally use for winemaking. And I made some wine and it was terrible. It was really <laughs> bad. I mean, it was what? embarrassingly so. And what, what year was this, just for context? This was like 2012. Okay. And so, but what was 
great about that extremely humbling experience was that I realized there was a lot more to winemaking than met the eye. And I needed, if I was going to learn how to make wine, you know, just for myself, really, I needed to pay more attention. Um, and so the following year, um, I decided to, to seek out my own grapes and I found a vineyard up in uh, Alexander Valley near Sonoma and I got some Syrah and I made my first like official thing of K Syrah and it was delicious. Yes. It was delicious. And, you know, actually it was your wife, Ilana, who gave me the idea for the name K Syrah. So it was, it was a moment of genius. And, uh, so anyway, that went really well. And then I got a position working at the Gallo Winery in Fresno. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to be working here. I'm not going to be making my own wine. And I kind of decided like, okay, that's not happening anymore. And almost like the moment I made that decision, I got a call from a person named Dove Bear Berkowitz. He's currently the Chabad rabbi in Walnut Creek, California. And he's a, he's a longtime friend of the family knows our dad and he contacted me because some of his congregants um, owned a vineyard and had offered to donate some grapes so he could make wine for his community mm. and he knew that I knew a little bit about winemaking and he called me up and he said would you be willing to like help me make this wine I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not up there anymore. I'm in Fresno. Da, da. And he said, look, it'd be really helpful. I said, okay, we'll make some wine. So we made some Zinfandel wine. And again, disaster struck. And it was terrible. It was really bad. And I ended up having to dump the wine in the streets of Oakland, which was not a good <laughs> look because you had this Jew with the kippah pouring out this red liquid into the streets. It didn't really look so great. Um, but... Dove Bear is a is a fearless guy who has a lot of tenacity. And he said, let's try again. Let's try to make some again. And the following year, we, we made wine from another grape in the vineyard called, uh, the, the grape is called Malvasia. It's very fruity, floral, like tastes like lychees and peaches. It's a beautiful grape. And I had heard that if you submit your wine to the California State Fair, you get feedback on the wine. And I thought, okay, this would be a great way for me to learn how, how I'm doing and what's working and what's not. So after the wine was made, I submitted it to the state fair. And lo and behold, I get a call from them saying, look, you've won the double gold. And I didn't even know that there was such a thing as double gold, but apparently double gold is when all the judges give you a gold medal, then you get double gold. And so... It was not the feedback I expected, but it was certainly very uh, inspiring and confidence boosting in terms of the winemaking. And so from there, we decided to make wine again the next year and the year for that. And every year we kept winning these awards, uh, gold, double gold, silver, then Winemaker Magazine gave us awards. And, and after this for about five years, more sort of a hobby level, we felt that we learned enough lessons about what not to do that we would were ready to go commercial. 
Mm-hmm. Because the last thing you want to do is make a wine that, say, spoils or the cork pops at a store or something like that. You want to know that you, what you're doing is going to be shelf-stable and taste good. Mm-hmm. And so we got licensed commercially just before COVID, and then COVID hit. So that kind of put the brakes on things because we just didn't know what we could do. There were no vaccines at the time. And then there were the California fires, which lasted Mm. for months and ruined the crop that year. And then finally, the year after that, we were able to, we were vaccinated. There were no fires and we we got a beautiful crop and we, we made the wine. But then we couldn't bottle it because the Ukraine war hit. And you would think, what does the Ukraine war have to do with bottling wine in California? Well, it turns out that the Ukraine is one of the largest manufacturers in the world of glass wine bottles. That's one of their big industries. And it turns out that all of the uh, uh, wine bottle suppliers in California that I knew were getting their, their bottles from the Ukraine and suddenly they didn't have any bottles. So you couldn't actually get bottles. So it took us six months to get bottles and paying at like twice or three times the cost. And finally, we were able to bottle this fall. And uh, in the last few months, we've officially launched uh, our website, which is inve.com, I-N-V-E-I, inve. And inve is ancient Hebrew for grapes. So... uh, there's a there's a line in in the Chumash that says inve hagafen, want a grapes of the vine. So uh, we launched, and the last few weeks I've been doing a, a wine tasting tour, on uh, mainly on the East Coast, but then uh, also in Southern California and the Bay Area, where I've been sharing my wine with people. And uh, we have three wines that we've got available: a, a Malbec dry rosé a dry Muscat Canelli, and a semi-sweet Gewürztraminer. Okay, well, that was a story. lot. Yeah, I know. It's a lot. I love it. Okay, I got the whole timeline. So there was like a couple years where you couldn't, you know, there were spires, disasters, pandemics, no bottles, and then finally 2022, I guess is what, you, what you're referencing, where these these three wines came from. Yeah? Yes. The okay, great. So one question for sure people are thinking when they're thinking about you and kosher wine is, you know, it's an obvious question. What makes wine kosher? So what makes wine kosher is two things, essentially. One is that it's the wine is made by Shomer Shabbat Jews. So Sabbath observant Jews need to be handling the wine. And the second thing is that any of the uh, ingredients that you might use in winemaking, for example, yeast or acid to increase the acid profile or um, some of the things that winemakers add to clarify the wine. So that let's say you look at a bottle of white wine, it's, it's very clear. Those things all need to be certified kosher for Passover. And that's an added level of um, stringency because for Passover, you have to make sure that everything is uh, kosher for for Pesach, meaning that there's nothing leavened in it. And when you're working with yeast, for example, which is used for baking bread and things, and which is something that we add to the grape juice to turn it into wine, you want to make sure that the yeast was grown in a facility 
that was certified kosher for Passover, as an example. Um, so those are really the two things, the people and the ingredients. And so in wineries where they're making both kosher and non-kosher wine, you need somebody there to ensure that the kosher wine isn't going into any of the tanks or the hoses or the pumps that the non-kosher wine is going through. So, it, it, you know, those are basically the elements that go into it. Got it. And then some people have heard of a term that you can help explain called mevushal. What is that and why is that useful or important? So mevushal basically means cooked or boiled. And it comes from the Talmudic times, you know, 2,000 years ago, where the rabbinic sages decided that as a prevention for intermarriage, they would, you would, they would cook the wine because it would taste worse, and therefore it would be less likely that the surrounding nations, the surrounding communities who were into idolatrous practices and all sorts of weird stuff, would want to drink bad-tasting wine with the Jews. If you're less likely to, if your son is less likely to drink wine with a Gentile neighbor, he's also less likely to marry her. So the idea was, if you make things mevushal, it will prevent that. Now, flash forward 2,000 years to contemporary times, there's another stringency around, uh, as I mentioned, when you're making uh, wine, you have to have Shoma Shabbat Jews handling it. Okay, so if somebody who's not Jewish handles the wine, it becomes no longer kosher. Okay, um, so if... Wait, one second. Yes. Quick, quick clarifying question. Handles meaning in the process of creation or after it's been made with the bottle or pouring or whatever. Okay, so if once wine is in a bottle and it's corked and sealed, anybody can move that bottle. But once you open the bottle, it has to be poured by a Shoma Shabbat Jew. Otherwise, it's considered, it can make it non, non-kosher. So now, there, but what the, what the contemporary rabbis figured out is a workaround. So for example, let's say you want to go to a kosher restaurant in Rome. And the kosher restaurant has hired the local people, the local Italians, to be the waiters and waitresses and servers. But you want them to be able to pour wine for the Orthodox Jew who's attending, you know, who's going to the restaurant. So if you make it mevushal, then it can be handled by, an, by anybody. It doesn't have to be a Jewish person or not. And there's a way to make a wine mevushal, halakhically, according to Jewish law, that can still preserve 99% of the flavor. And, and that process is basically flash pasteurization. So wines that are mevushal go through a process where they're basically heated up to, let's say, 180 degrees for about half a second. And then they're dropped down to 40 degrees and cooled. So in the kosher winemaking world, there's mevushal wine and there's non-mevushal wine. 
people often make the Mabushaw wine so they could be served, let's say, at like a, a huge wedding where you're going to have all sorts of catering companies handling the wine and pouring it, and you don't have to worry about it becoming non-kosher. So that's why people will often, wineries will often make Mabushaw wine. And now the uh, technology for making things Mabushaw has evolved to the level that it has a much less impact on the flavor of wine. But there are many people who will still argue that it has an impact on the flavor of wine. And so people will often seek out non-Mabushaw wine because they, it doesn't have that impact. Got it. I love it. And so your wine that you're making is all non-Mabushaw. Yes, that's correct. Okay. How do you decide on any given year what you want to make in terms of styles of wine? That's a great question, Saul. Uh, so what we try to do at Inve is we want to make wines that most people aren't making in the kosher wine sphere. And we want to make wines in a style that few people are doing. So for example, we make a Muscat Canali. Most people have heard of Moscato wine, which is also made from Muscat. It's a sweet wine that's that people often, it's bubbly, etc. So I make uh, the Muscat dry. So you still get the floral fruit forward nose, but you get a very dry, crisp, refreshing experience on your palate. Um, I make a rosé from Malbec, which is a grape typically found in southern France and Argentina, but is rarely used to make rosé. So, of course, I was like, okay, let's make a rosé with Malbec. Um, and so all of our wines have that kind of thinking behind it. Can we offer something new? or something that is not made very often. Now we make a Gewürztraminer. It's not a very common wine in the kosher sphere. Gewürztraminer is a German word for spicy. So it's got a bit mm -hmm. of a spice mm -hmm. to it. Um, mm -hmm. And it also is made in the Alsace region, really the Ashkenaz region. So the Ashkenaz part of France bordering on Germany is where a lot of the varietals I like to make come from. The other thing that influences which wines I will make is that grape harvest occurs during the Hebrew month of Tishrei, which is like August, September, October, which is also the time when Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and all the holidays happen, which means there are very few days in that period of time that a kosher winemaker can actually get grapes because you're in holiday or you're in Shabbat. So the other thing that influences is what's available on the few days that I can actually get my grapes. I love it. And are most of your grapes sourced from Northern California? Yeah, all, all sourced from, well, all sourced from the Northern California, except the Muscat we get from Central California. So down in the Fresno, Modesto region, because Muscat grapes like hotter environments. They tend to bring out more of the, the fruit flavors and more of the sugar. So for the Muscat, we get from Central California. I love it. Great. So tell me a little bit about your, your vision for, you know, if, if Inbay is the company or yourself and your partner. You know, where, where do you see this going in the next 10 years? So I'm often thinking about the next week or month, let alone <laughs> the next 10 years. But what we're doing right now is we're trying to do what's called a direct-to-consumer model 
where we sell directly to people rather than through stores uh, because we want to create relationships with our customers and, uh, and to sort of, in a way, build community around the brand. What I would like to see happen over the next 10 years, of course, is for that community to grow significantly <laughs> and um, to be able to have um, a, a, a financial backbone to it, meaning being successful in the sales that allows us to experiment even more than we have. We would mm -hmm. like to, to venture into making many different styles of wines and introduce those into the kosher market so that uh, people who keep kosher can try wines that the rest of the world is already experimenting with. There's, there's so many fascinating new styles, styles of winemaking and grape varietals that, that people are exploring. And what we would like to do is have the ability to explore that more. So there are things like natural wines that don't use sulfites. There are things like orange wines, which is where you take white grapes and you ferment on the skins, which is unusual. And then the color of the wine turns a bit orange, but you get all sorts of other flavors that are unusual and interesting. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of red wines and red varietals that aren't typically made. Most people know Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Zinfandel. But what about Nebbiolo? What about uh, Tanat? What about Barbera? There's, there's hundreds of grape varieties that are out there that I would like to explore and bring into, you know, the kosher market. I love it. I love it. Well, and so since we are almost here at Pesach, can people order your wine online and, and get it in time for Pesach and talk a little bit about time for delivery so people have a good expectation? Sure. Um, so they can go to the website, inve.com, I-N as in Nancy, V-E-I, inve.com. And you can order the wines there. Depending on where you are in the world will depend upon the shipping time. So if, if somebody were to get order the wine in the next day or two, you could probably get it by Pesach on the East Coast. For sure on the West Coast. Um, after that, it may be a little hard to get it by the beginning of, of Pesach. But, you know, the thing is, as Jews, we have so many opportunities to drink wine, let alone Shabbat. The end of Pesach, Shavuot, Rosh Hashanah, it goes on and on. You know, we're, we're a very wine-centric culture. So there's plenty of time to get the wine. And if somebody's in the Bay Area, they can do a local pickup. So if they want to get the wine today, tomorrow, Monday, whatever they want, they can um, go on the websites, request local pickup, and then they can come and just pick it up here in Berkeley. Amazing. Great. And then are you also, I know you just got back from a little wine tour where you were doing a lot of tastings around the country. Are you available to fly out and do that in different communities? Is that something you're going to be doing more of throughout the year? Yes. Yes. I am available to do that. And we want to do that more. We, it was such a successful tour and, you know, so many people wanted to be able to come who were maybe out of town and different things like that. So I'm going to be setting up more touring probably in May, um, maybe in June um in different parts of the country so if somebody's interested basically it involves hosting a group of people at your home maybe providing some bread and cheese so they have something to nosh on and then i come and share the wines 
I love it. I was just thinking of a stadium tour for wine. We'll I'm get there. Oh, totally open to that too. You can, I can open for the stones. Okay, cool. So my last question I want to ask you, and thanks for your time, of course. Yeah, I ask all my guests this. What do you think the Jewish world needs most now and why? I think what the Jewish world needs most is a way for Jews on different sides of the political spectrum to be able to come together and enjoy each other as people, to be able to keep the Jewish community whole and to see that there's wonderful people on all sides of the political spectrum, as opposed to getting sort of compartmentalized. So if you're somebody who's never been to Chabad, go to Chabad. If you're somebody who's only goes to Chabad, go to a different shul. Try to connect with your fellow Jews and think about ways that you can connect with other Jews that aren't necessarily about being in a synagogue. You know, host a meal, uh, go to a meal, um, have an event. You know, what's amazing is I was just in Los Angeles, for example, and the first night I, I did a tasting there, it was like a very Bernie Sanders kind of crowd. You know, it, this is all in the Orthodox world. And I, by the way, I do tastings and non-Orthodox doesn't matter, but, but it was a very Bernie Sanders crowd. The next night was a completely non-Bernie Sanders crowd. You know, people were talking about gun rights and things like that. And what I thought was at both of those events, I met wonderful people great people who just wanted to get together and they just want to hang out. You know, it's essentially what people want to do. They want to get together and hang out and have a good time. And I thought how wonderful it would be to bring all of them together so they can just get to know each other and form bonds. Because I think that's really what we need the most is, is, you know, Avat Yisrael, bringing your fellow Jews together. 100% love it. And I a hundred percent agree. Uh, well, Thank you for your time, Mikey. Hashem <laughs> uh, should bless you with Simcha, Shalom, Parnassa, and that people should um, have your wine really be a pathway to creating community and creating that connection and creating those gatherings where people can come together from different sides of different opinions and enjoy a nice glass of wine and create community. So I'm proud of you, man. I love you and I appreciate your time and we will see you on the next episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. I'm your host, Saul Kay. Please subscribe. It helps the podcast. Share this with friends and family who you think would be inspired by the content. And we will see you on our next episode.